0: Can you truly love someone without telling them the truth? Let me give you an example. Uh, Maybe you see someone, and this has occurred, um, they have something in their teeth. Can you truly love them without telling them about the spinach? Now, I I know in this example, some prefer maybe not to be pointed out over this, but others are like, how could you let me go on talking to you like that? What in the world, right? What about with kids? Can you truly love them without telling them the truth? It's spring break, and um, for some, maybe you're enjoying sleeping in and and having some lazy days, and now it's been two or three or four days without a shower. Can you love that kid without telling them they smell bad? That maybe a shower would help, some soap? All right, what about this? You're at work, and you see a coworker who is always creating a mishap. They're always failing at the sale, messing up the product. They're always offending a coworker. Can you truly care about that coworker without pointing out you're doing it wrong? And to all of these, I don't think you can. I think at one point or another, love speaks up because they care about that other. The question is how does love speak up? For example, when it comes to the teeth, we, we could just look at them and say, "Ooh, gross, you're so disgusting. Look in the mirror. That's one way to do it. Not very kind. You could turn to that teen, that person who hasn't showered in four days, and say, You stink. Get some soap. That's one way to do it. Not sure it would be effective. Or you could approach a coworker and you could have this conversation. Has anyone ever told you, you're terrible with people, <laughs> or sales, or your hands? Let me show you. Now, all of that would be very truthful in those circumstances. However, would it be helpful because it was not combined with grace? Maybe not. And so, truth is important, but also grace is important. In fact, um, here's a takeaway. If you're you're taking notes, this is what I believe. If you only have truth, but you have no grace, it's mean, it's rude, it's barbaric even. But if you have grace, but you never share the truth, you're an enabler. And you are prolonging bad behavior as long as you continue to see that, love that person, but never say a word. That's enabling. And how well does our society do with this mix of truth and grace? The the culture we live in, the people we surround ourselves. For me, I don't think we're doing so well. For example, in this world, whether it be in the news or this culture, there are certain items that just never get addressed. They're never affecting the public conscience. And because they never affect public conscience, they don't get talked about. And it enables bad behavior because no one thinks certain things are wrong. Let's not go there. Let's not address them. But then when something does become part of public conscience or your friend's conscience, those issues and whoever has done them, are lambasted so badly that if you're ever caught up in that activity, you are like blacklisted. You are written off. How could you ever? And I can't believe, and my goodness, I thought I knew. Society, I don't think, is our model for handling truth and grace. But when someone does get it right, it's like magic. I remember this happening in my own life. Um, JV football. And I remember my favorite coach, Coach Boo Baltz. And uh, he knew how to get the best out of his players. That's what made him so good. And, and it, it was shown by uh, once we, we lost epically. We stunk up the field. It was awful. It was bad. And, um, and everyone knew it. And so we went into that next practice that following week, and, and he had to address it. And he did. He's like, yep, that was, that was awful. Let's not do that. But, but then he used humor, and he shared a joke, and, and basically said, so what? Big deal. Let's move on. There's another day, there's a new game, here we go. And encourage us all the more. He addressed it, but he got over it, and he led us into a new day. Has anyone ever modeled truth and grace beautifully for you? It's a wonderful thing. I bring this up because we are in the second week of our series, Jesus Is. And whatever you answer, Jesus Is, whatever is in that blank is so important. And if you're in the faith and if you're part of this church family, one of the things we discussed is this, that the most important thing Jesus is, is Lord and Savior. And if you're new to this church or uh, just visiting or watching online, um, we're just hoping that you see why he deserves to be Lord and Savior. There's no one like him. There's no one greater or more beautiful. Last week, we looked at him as the substitute. Only he could pay for our sins and live a perfect life. But today, as we get in the picture of who Jesus is, I want to give you the descriptor from John chapter 1. Uh, Look at what John chapter 1 says. It says, The Word became flesh, made His dwelling among us. That Word is the Lord Jesus. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of, can you say this with me, full of grace and truth. When Jesus came, His message was not one to enable sin and sinful activity." He didn't come so that he could teach and make sure we could do whatever we want, whenever we want, with whomever we want, as long as no one gets hurt. That wasn't the message. He addressed sin. But then he followed it up with grace, as the Savior, as the forgiver. And never was truth and grace married so beautifully than on the cross. The cross declares what sin has done. Sin means, out of truth, that we deserve the wrath of God. But then the cross also declares that Jesus has won for us the forgiveness of God, the love of God, and fellowship with the Father. Jesus is both truth and grace. And so as we turn to our lesson, we get, I think, just a beautiful, a winsome account of how he mixes both. What we're going to see is him talking to a Samaritan woman, And the interplay of how he approaches the topic of truth, but then also handles grace. What we see in this account is that before we were ever on a mission to reach the lost with the love of Christ, he modeled that mission. He was going to reach everyone and anyone with his love. And so we turn to John chapter 4, and in honor of God's word, I'm going to invite you to stand. This is God's word for us. And... um, It is a longer account, just to let you know, but I love the interplay of Jesus and the Samaritan woman. Let's see the story. Now, he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw out water, Jesus said to her, Give me this water, so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands, and the man you are now with is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you're a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman Jesus replied, Believe me. A time is coming when you will worship the Father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. And this is a reference that Jesus came from the line of Judah. Um, and so Judah was uh, again the offspring, Jesus was the offspring of Judah. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. And because this is true worship, we can worship here in Frankfurt at Amazing Love with with true hearts. The woman said, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am, and that was the word for God, I am he. Powerful words. Could you just turn to someone next to you and say, we have found living water? We have found living water. Please be seated. You never know the true value of something until you really need it. For example, whenever the power goes out, you recognize all the ways that you rely on electricity. A couple weeks ago, we had the water go out, some pipes burst from the water main, and it was amazing how much we rely on indoor plumbing and and how many uh, gallons of water go towards a shower and the sink and and using, you know, the bathroom. It's just incredible. Uh, Maybe that's what you found when it comes to sleep, as we have lost an hour uh, man, that, that hour, I'm, I'm going to feel it the, all this week, some of you are saying, right? I think uh, the reason uh, we, we see the value of, of what's missing uh, is even drawn into uh, the Chicago Bears. I wanted you to consider, who are the Chicago Bears rumored of, of possibly getting as quarterback? Have you heard this rumor? Uh, right now, the rumor is that maybe they will acquire Russell Wilson, And and we don't even know if this is potentially uh, possible, if if he has any interest, if he would come here. uh, It's just the rumor mill at this point that the Chicago Bears will get Russell Wilson. But I think there's a reason that this rumor is spread like wildfire. Because the Bears need a quarterback, like really bad. And so they value any idea of a good quarterback to come to Chicago because they recognize innately their need to have someone in that position. Yeah? I bring up this uh, dichotomy because Jesus comes to the woman, and what he is doing is he's trying to present to her her need. And the reason that he goes there with a bunch of truth is so that once seeing her need, she will value what he has to offer even more than Chicagoans valuing Russell Wilson. But did you consider the way he did it? Now, one of the ways he could have done it is showing up to her and diving right into her sin. I know something about you. Not sure that would have been the most effective. So what does Jesus do? They're by the well, and he just opens conversation. Hey, do you think I could get some water? And he leads with this idea that he has a gift. If you knew the gift of God, he front loads with this fact that that he has something to offer her. But then in this dichotomy, when she's wondering, you know, do I never have to come to the well because you have this gift? What is this? It's then that finally he lets her know the truth. What does he say, very strikingly? Go call your husband. And then, after she responds and tries to play coy, says, I I know. I know you have no husband. In fact, I know you've had five. And right now you're living with a man. I know. But why does he do this? Some of you might even be shocked by this behavior of Jesus and say, Jesus, get out of her business. Jesus, you're being so mean, you're so cruel. Uh, We all have a past. Come on, Jesus, why are you picking on her? So that once she recognizes her need, the solution he's been talking about, the thing he truly wanted to give, the gift of God, living waters that quench thirsty souls, will be that much more valuable if she did not first recognize how much she needs the forgiveness of sins, she might have overlooked the offer of Jesus. But here, now, married with the need, he has the solution. See, Jesus, full of grace and truth, points out need in order to offer the solution. And the same is true with you and I. You know, it's so interesting that when we come to church and when we read the Bible, sometimes instead of it all being just super comforting, we find out how messed up we are. We are driven even more to this idea that, man, I'm not just like a little sinner, like I'm a big sinner. In fact, then we kind of realize what we need from God, and what we need from God is more than just a helping hand and like some help to get past the finish line. What we need from God is rescue. Consider the difference between help and rescue. Rescue. When you're moving, you might like some help with the furniture. You might like someone else to carry a box or two to get you past and to load the truck. That's a helping hand. Rescue is when you're stranded. Rescue is in the middle of the ocean, and there's nothing you can do. Um, I'm not sure my picture is here. Um, There it is. Sorry for the technical difficulties. A helping hand is not here. Uh, If you're in the middle of the ocean, you need a helicopter. You you need the Coast Guard to come out after you, uh, to to send someone down and lift you up. When it comes to us in Jesus Christ, we need rescue. We were talking about this in our Bible class on Wednesday, and we were looking at the words that Paul said about himself. Uh, Paul said about himself, um, what a wretched man I am. And what's really interesting is that Paul was an apostle and and a great missionary at this time, but he was wrestling with all the good he didn't do and the evil he didn't want to do. And you think of this woman in that moment addressed with her sin. Couldn't she just say, man, what a wretched woman I am. And you think of our activity with the word of God and, and how often it confronts us. And at one point or another, real with our sin, we could say, man, what a wretched man or woman I am. But then consider what Jesus offers. Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? Thanks be to God, for he delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. God allows us, just like that woman, to see how ugly and deep and shameful our sins are. Why? So that he is all the more beautiful. And when he offers you forgiveness and springs of life, You take him up on the offer because you recognize your need. This is Jesus the Savior. And he makes that offer to you if this is the first time. To wipe all your sins away, to rescue you from what you deserve because of his cross. This was the offer, the gift that he wanted to give this woman. But there's so much more here. And I see that Jesus' way is different than our way. Because in our society, we live in cancel culture. Have you heard of cancel culture? It's when someone does something so wrong, so inappropriate, that they are ostracized, and you never want to hear from them again. They are blacklisted. And there are many people who are subject to cancel culture. I consider just a couple names. Um, Here are uh, Roseanne and Ellen or... Maybe my pictures aren't working so well today. Um, Roseanne and Ellen, um, are they up there, Dave? Am I just clicking over them? Am I really? Wow, that's really bad. They're not there, are they? They're not there. Hey! It's a Christmas miracle. Where are we? Cancel culture. Both of them have done things that would uh, be evidence that they should be ostracized. Roseanne for inappropriate comments. Ellen for a workplace that people say is toxic and not so well. And so our society's solution for all of this is just to write them off. Uh, Roseanne has a show still going. She's just not there. Ellen for a while lost a lot of uh, numbers. A lot of people following her took some time off in order to come back. And and, and I was reading a little bit about cancel culture and why it exists, and these comments from the Wall Street Journal. Cancel culture thrives only in society deprived of forgiveness. Cancel culture succeeds because Americans have forgotten how to say, I forgive you. To forgive is not to excuse or justify, but to acknowledge wrongdoing and mend whatever damage has been done. And those words struck a chord with me. I I don't know if they struck a chord with you. That we have lost the idea of forgiveness. We have lost the way of forgiveness. That it's never condoning and it's not saying it was okay. It's just that you are going to apply what Jesus has done for you to someone else. And you're able to go forward once again. I consider cancel culture in Jesus because if anyone should have been canceled, it was this person in our account. Let me explain a little bit of what's going on. Jews hate Samaritans. In fact, that's what the woman even suggested. The woman turned to Jesus and said, you are a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. In fact, it was so bad that when Jews would travel from the north part of their kingdom to the south, like Jerusalem, instead of going through Samaria, which was the straightest path, they would go around Samaria. They would waste time traveling so they wouldn't have the opportunity of intermixing with these people. Now, let me explain why the hate exists. Um, Samaritans were half-breeds. They were not true-blooded Jews. In 722, the Assyrians got rid of the northern kingdom of Israel. And from that time, some of the Jews intermixed with the Assyrians, and so their blood became unclean to the Jewish mind. Not only that, but then they started worshiping false gods. So in Samaria, you have the worship of God as she recognized Jacob and others, but you also have the worship of other false gods. And for those two reasons, the Jews could not tolerate the Samaritans. By the way, I'm not saying that is right, I'm just saying it is. Another thing going on in this uh, dichotomy is it wasn't common um, for men to interact with women on the same level. I'm not saying the ra- that was right, I'm just saying it is. So when Jesus talks to a Samaritan who's also a woman, this was a double taboo in that day. A final note. You have the holy, perfect Son of God talking to this woman whose sins are very known. If anyone should have been canceled, it was this woman. If anyone should have been in this uh, culture, blacklisted, ostracized, it was this woman. And yet what I appreciate about the word of God here is that is the very reason he goes to this woman. In fact, in verse 4, it says he had to go through Samaria. And why? Why? so that she would know she has the right to forgiveness. Why? So that the Jews and the disciples of that day know this is the heart of God for not just this Samaritan woman, but for everyone. See, our Heavenly Father cancels no one. And Jesus, full of truth and grace, cancels no one. And what this means for you and I is that it doesn't matter how your family feels about you right now. Maybe you're watching and your family has kind of ostracized you because of a misdeed and they won't give you the time of day. Jesus hasn't canceled you. Maybe that's what it's like in your workplace or in your friend group. Maybe that's what it's like in your community or in society because of something that you had done or something you're known for. And while everyone else puts you in a different camp, Jesus doesn't. You are not canceled. Or maybe bigger, when it comes to our sin and we have something that would cancel us from God, in our past or something we're still dealing with or maybe it'll be something in the future and you think, man, God would never forgive you, he would never love, and Jesus reminds you again, no, I cancel no one for my cross covers it all. This is the beauty of the lesson. But if we learn from his example and we apply it to our own society and our own culture, I guess I have to follow up and I have to ask, who is it that God is calling you to uncancel? And hear me clearly, I'm not saying to say that what they did was right. I'm not saying to condone sinful activity. What I'm asking is, who is God calling you? To work out forgiveness to apply the same grace that you receive and know to someone else if we all do this society is affected for the better but there is more going on here and uh, as we consider this some of you might say well pastor didn't Jesus cancel some people like the Pharisees. And the Pharisees, you think of what Jesus said to the Pharisees. He called them at one point a brood of vipers, at another point whitewashed tombs. Um, sometimes Jesus would tell a story, and the point of this story was how the Pharisees were wrong. That was the point of the story called the Good Samaritan, that they were getting it wrong. And yet what we learn with the Pharisees is that they were very hard-hearted. And so Jesus was hard in that case. In fact, as you look at the mix of both truth and grace, he would give more grace to the despairing, like the Samaritan woman who knows her sin, but more truth to the self-righteous, like the Pharisees, who didn't think they needed any Savior, didn't think they needed any correction. Isn't that what we do with kids? When a kid is wrong and unruly and we discipline them, let's say they're up in their room and they're crying for an hour. Will you not, after they're crying for an hour for what they've done, go up to the room and try to convince them you love them, that you've forgiven them, that it's okay? To the despairing, you're going to give more grace, aren't you? Let's take another situation where that child does not care the damage they're doing to those around them. They do not care that they are being a rude guest and they said the wrong thing. They do not care that they are offending and hurting the siblings or their classmates. They just don't care. Won't you do almost anything to present to them that they are wrong? That this truth is that you need to stop doing that. That, that is unacceptable behavior. And so you might send them to their room or you might not give them dessert or take away their cell phone because they need to know the truth. Now the emphasis of forgiveness might come later, but they don't even want to hear that word if they don't first know that they're doing wrong. And so our God, he does that same thing to us. And so what does God do uh, for us? Does he apply more truth or does he apply more grace? Well, it just depends on the day. It depends on the season. It depends on the activity. Right? Some days he knows he needs to correct something, and so he gives truth. Some days he needs to assure you that you're forgiven. That's what he does. I remember this one time. My Heavenly Father was really good giving me truth. I was in college and I saved up some entertainment money and with that entertainment money I was going to spend $20 at a casino first time in a casino now I was of age and um, I I went and I played a beefed-up video game and that $20 I pulled the lever four times and it was gone like it never gave me any increase just $20 gone and, and, and back in that day, $20 was a lot of money for a college kid. That meant four pizza nights. Uh, two for ten, Domino's, that was four pizza nights I was giving up, all right? And, and so in five minutes, my Heavenly Father was so good saying, uh, son, this is dumb. <laughs> son, you may be legal enough to do this, but doesn't mean you should do this. Don't do it, Right? Has your Heavenly Father ever done that for you? I know He has. (laughs) It's His love. When you know it's the wrong thing to do, you know you've crossed the line. You know it might be even acceptable for some others, but you know in your heart of hearts, I should not be doing it, and He lets you realize it. That's love. But then there are other times we're so despairing. And so out of sorts, he shows up with a tender voice and says, You're still my child. It was wrong, but it's forgiven. You're mine. I love this passage from Hebrews that says this My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline. Don't lose heart when he rebukes you, because the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as a son. God knows exactly how to handle truth and grace because he knows our hearts and he knows the path that we are on. But as we close, God can do this perfectly because he knows our hearts. We can't see hearts, so our attempts are imperfect. We don't know the paths people are on and so sometimes it's taken in the wrong way. And so I guess one conclusion is, well, we'll just let God do the truth and grace thing. The only unfortunate thing is that whether we realize it or not, we are giving truth and grace all the time. Right now, in your walk, whether you realize it or not, you are more on the truth wavelength of people or on the grace wavelength. You are more an enabler or you're more of a truth bringer uh, in certain relationships, whether you realize it or not. And so, I think we need to consider a couple takeaways. The the first is practical takeaway for me is this: don't forget what we have to offer. The word that really struck me from this account was when God offered a gift. When early in the account, he said, man, if you knew the gift of God, even before addressing the truth, it's like he's chomping at the bit in order to give her something good. And it reminds me of my position as pastor. Sometimes I just feel like I'm Santa Claus. And, and I'm holding this bag of gifts that Jesus won, and I get to give them out. You've you, you got forgiveness and eternal life, and you get peace, and you get joy, right? Because as a Christian, that's what I got. I want to tell you, you're Santa Claus. You got a bag of gifts. You get to go on behalf of God and say, you get forgiveness, and you get eternal life. It's all free through Him. So you might bring truth in certain circumstances, but maybe you should front load it and back load it with the gift of God. Another takeaway I have is this, that if anyone comes to me or in your life trying to share a truthful word, it may not go perfectly. Because unlike God, what they do not know and what I do not know is hearts. Cannot read them. All they can do is love you the best based on what they see, but make no mistake about it, I think they'll get it wrong at times. Their approach might be off, their read might be off, But still, I think we should accept the truth, yet recognize it could be shared imperfectly. If you sense that someone is trying to love you, even though they shared a hard word, accept the love. And take whatever the criticism, whatever part of it was true, even if the approach was off. For if you've ever done that and tried to lead that way, you know that that is a rare form of love, a hard form of love, a love that is very near towards a person. But who do we see today? Jesus who deserves to be Lord once again because the need that he exposes is the need that he fulfills. He is the solution. And as you consider the dance he does with you, as he gives to you both truth and grace, may he lead you ever closer to him. Amen.